everyone, Alana here, and it's been a lot of fun making this podcast. I get to talk about what I love, meet some really cool people doing it, and I have total creative freedom. Are you interested in making your own podcast? Go for it, and go for it with Anchor. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more platforms. There's even creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And best of all, it's free. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Hey everyone, and welcome to Girl Presses Play, the movie podcast where we talk about films, what we think about them, and what makes them so damn great. I'm your host, Alana Rafferty. Get comfy, grab some popcorn, and get ready, because we're about to press play. And now for our feature presentation. So, it's 2020. We've been in quarantine for quite a bit of time. How much time? Who knows? Because time is kind of meaningless at this point, isn't it? But for all of the stresses that come with working from home, there's some great stuff like having a lot more time on our hands when we're not commuting from here to there and trying to get to the office and this and that. So we have a lot more time to watch movies on our hands, which makes this little cinephile very happy. And as I've been diving into my Netflix Criterion Collection, you name a streaming service, I've been diving into it. As I've been diving into all of these movies that I haven't watched in a while or haven't watched before, I've been discovering some past gems that have definitely influenced today's newer films that are definitely going to stand the test of time. And I've really started to get a better understanding of how film A from the past has influenced and led to film B from today being able to be made and really appreciated for what it is. And seeing how these films really took the genre that they were working in and broke the rules and paved the way for future filmmakers, it really inspired me to make Girl Press's play first season about the exploration of genre and what it is, as well as what it could be. And hopefully this season, along with this episode, will not only inspire ideas and discussions with listeners, but will inspire filmmakers to think about genre in a different way and try some new things on their own films. So for today's episode, let's take a look at some of the genre rule breakers that paved the way for today's new classics. So we'll find him in the end, I promise you. I am not whatever it is you think I am. I'm getting the hell out of Stepford. Get out! Just a quick warning for all listeners today that there will be spoilers ahead for the films The Searchers, Logan, Get Out, and The Stepford Wives. You have been warned. To understand our first movie, The Searchers, we really have to take a look at why Westerns were so popular in the first place. 
The first recorded Western in history was the Great Train Robbery of 1903. And from then on, they just got more popular and stayed popular because they really reflected how audiences of the time saw the Western world, or in this case, the United States. The U.S. in the eyes of the world was the tough good guy, ready to defeat the baddies all by himself. Yes, it was always a him, never a her. They were the personification of the world that we wanted to see and the people we wanted to call our heroes. To put it simply, it was a genre for the times, but, you know, times change and people change. And as The Atlantic pointed out, as the 50s in the U.S. approaches, the good guy image starts to shift a little bit in the thick of the Cold War, which is right when John Ford released his latest John Wayne film, The Searchers. A man whose unconquerable will and boundless determination carved a lusty, rough, and boisterous slice of history called The Searchers. At that time, what made this Western so different from any other Western that came out honestly, is the racism and not the outdated, they just didn't know any better and didn't bother trying racism, but just a very full-on, hateful, xenophobic racism towards the Comanche tribe that kidnaps Lucy. Examples of that are when Ethan calls his partially Native American nephew Blanket Head. There's also a scene where Ethan passes by a Native American warrior dying on the side of the road and he shoots him in the eyes just so he's caught between the worlds, the spirit world and the physical world. That's that's a really extra move <laughs> to, to put it lightly and that is not meant to be a moment that is lost on the audience. Even Martin Scorsese, who has toted this film as one of his favorite films of all time, in a review that he wrote about it for The Hollywood Reporter, he wrote, he hates the Comanches so much that he actually bothered to learn their beliefs in order to violate them. I found him. I found Lucy. What you saw was a buck wearing Lucy's dress. But all of this violence and very outward racism isn't for nothing. It's to show just how much this hatred of the other, whoever the other may be, will really destroy you in the end and make you much less powerful and heroic than you thought you were. Screen Prism put it really well in their review of the film. They said, Ford is challenging the myth of the characters that made John Wayne a star. And I think in some ways they were challenging the myth of American patriotism those days when patriotism was tattletaling, for lack of a better word, on your fellow American. It's true that upon first viewing, there definitely seem to be some moments that are going for pejorative comedy and they're trying to take an easy jab. For example, the part where Martin Polly kicks his Native American wife down a hill. It may seem like it's just trying to make a jab at Native Americans, but I disagree with that. I think moments like that are meant to put you in the perspective of John Wayne's Ethan and really challenge your own prejudices and make you ask why, in fact, you're laughing at this person you consider the other. 
It did well at the box office and critics gave it okay reviews, but it didn't sweep audiences away in the way that a lot of Ford and Wayne's other collaborations had. And I think that was the case because honestly, I think it was just a little too ahead of its time. I think a very self-reflective movie was made for audiences that perhaps just weren't ready to be that self-reflective in a genre as popular as Westerns. But then we flash forward 60 years later when superheroes are the Westerns of our time and the film Logan, directed by James Mangold, comes out. And not only was everyone really excited for another superhero movie to come out, but this is going to be Hugh Jackman's last film as Wolverine. It was going to be his swan song as the superhero that gave him international stardom. I think what this film does really well in a similar way that The Searchers does is it questions the legacy and specifically the legacy of the tough guy. I think what the film and the character do is they challenge the perception and morality of what a hero is in the same way that the searchers challenge the morality of the cowboy in the West and just how great were they really. Victoria Large wrote a great article about how through the young girl who has the same powers as Logan and who grew up reading the X-Men comics, it really makes us examine as our society, what are we teaching our kids is strength and heroism. And not just with the reviews, but with the hundreds of millions of dollars this movie made at the box office, it was clear that audiences were ready for a change. Even the director, James Mangold, said in an interview, the studio recognized a kind of exhaustion setting in with the formulaic format of the quote-unquote superhero movie. While people are coming to see them, there is a sense that people are getting tired, and we were encouraged to try something different. And I think what he did so differently and so well is that he really grounds the violence not just with Logan, but with the young child, Laura, so that you're really questioning what is a hero and what do you have to become and what do you have to lose to become the hero that everybody wants you to. So you remember who I am now? I always know who you are. It's just sometimes I don't recognize you. Take the pills. Logan is a truly amazing movie just on its own, but I really don't think that Logan would have been possible if it wasn't for the existence of the searchers that showed us that it's important to shake things up, even in very traditional genres like the Western or the superhero, because your genre could be popular, but not necessarily relevant. And this isn't just true for very mainstream genres like Westerns or superheroes. Horror has definitely fallen into conventions for just a few too many movies sometimes. In the 1940s, there were films like The Wolfman, Dracula, Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, all the classic MGM horror films, which are wonderful, but they were very clear and simple. The monster was always just that, and the situation was very fantastical, and the location was always in some faraway European castle or in some, like, very consistently fog-filled <laughs> woods, also in Europe, usually. But then, in 1975, the Stepford Wives did something 
pretty radical for its time. It made the monster your husband, and it made the eerie location the prim and perfect suburbs of Stepford, Connecticut. Nanette Newman, who was not only in the movie The Stepford Wives, but married to its director, Brian Forbes, until his death in 2013. She put it really, really well when talking about the film. She said, A lot of horror movies are dark and gloomy and sinister, but this was a horror that was in sunlight with beautiful surroundings and beautiful people. It made it so it made it so it lulled you along until it finally terrified you. And audiences were terrified of the film, just not necessarily in the way that they intended to. When this movie first came out, women especially, they had an outright hatred for the movie. I believe Bretty Friedman said it was the worst thing she had ever seen in her entire life. Uh, There were threats made to Brian Forbes' life because when people first saw the movie, they genuinely thought that the male director who made this film was in favor of the husbands and what they were doing. When in reality, it was the complete opposite and it's interesting. Putting aside the perspective of the filmmaker for a second, there's just some basic things such as Catherine Ross's character is clearly the protagonist of the film that we're supposed to be rooting for. If you watch the film, it's very clear that it's told from her perspective and we're supposed to be rooting for her and not for the men's society of Stepford. I think what made this film so reactive with audiences is the fact that it really combined satire and comedy in horror in a way that really hadn't been explored in that way before. Horror films have always very cleverly made commentary about society. Even if you look at the old MGM movies, they're clearly talking about some stuff that was going on at the time as simple and straightforward as they were. This was much more in your face and very blunt about what it was trying to talk about. And what it was trying to talk about was the fact that we may be thinking we're such modern people with forward thoughts, but if you look a little closer and dig a little deeper, you find that there are certain people in high positions of power that want to keep things exactly the way they are. I like to watch women doing little domestic chores. You came to the right town. It's very similar to when the film Starship Troopers came out in 1997, and everyone thought that Paul Verhoeven, the director of the film, was making a straight action film. And that was not the case at all. He was very much making a satire and a film that was commenting on militaristic societies and who the good guy actually was. And that was a very similar approach that Brian Forbes took to The Stepford Wives. But unfortunately, in its day audiences didn't receive it in the way that the movie deserved to. Yes, the phrase Stepford Wife is very much a part of the public lexicon, but I would say that the phrase Stepford Wife lives on and is much more alive in our culture than the actual movie itself. 
And then over the next couple of years, especially in the 80s heyday of Freddy and Jason and all those great slasher films, horror films pretty much remained straightforward. They were maybe a little self-referential about horror films themselves, like Scream, for example, but there was never really any blending of genres or trying to take a slightly different approach to making a horror film. And then Jordan Peele releases Get Out in 2017, and that just blew the top off of everything. And this movie, as we all know, goes on to be loved by audiences, loved by critics, and made just a boatload of money at the box office. It was about a $5 million budget, and it made quadruple that, even more. It made about $100 million at the box office, probably even more when you count VOD and whatnot. But this movie was universally loved, and what makes it so interesting that it was so universally loved is the fact that Jordan Peele has said in many interviews that Ira Levin's work, specifically The Stepford Wives, was a huge influence on how he wrote the movie and how he approached telling this story. So it's a very clear example of how certain risk-taker movies from back in the day really paved the way for movies that audiences just absolutely love. What makes this film very different from The Stepford Wives, though, is how Peel mixes comedy, horror, and satire so much within the movie, even sometimes within a scene, that it almost gives you this dizzying effect that really puts you into the perspective of Chris when he's in this very new, perhaps very dangerous environment, and he's just trying to figure out all the rules to get his bearings and to stay safe, quite honestly. A great example of that is the family dinner scene where in just a couple of moments, the brother Jeremy goes from being a funny, mostly tolerable D-bag to suddenly being a very prejudiced, racist, and very dangerous D-bag. And you feel like Chris in that moment. You thought you were one way with a character and then suddenly you're another way and you don't even know what's going on in the moment. And it's just amazing how Peel can switch the tones and switch the audience expectations and switch the genre conventions so much to the point where no matter who you are or what your life experience is, you're really in the same perspective as the main character. I did judo after school, first grade. Aww. You should have seen me. Judo. Because with your frame and your genetic makeup, if you really pushed your body, and I mean really trained, you know, no around, you'd be a f beast. Carrot cake. And this movie isn't just a rule breaker in the way that it was made. It honestly was also a rule breaker for the film industry. Mark Harris wrote a really great article in Vulture about Get Out, and the way that he explained it is really great. He says, everything about this movie screams niche, from the budget to the first-time director to the clear lack of stars to the genre. Horror cut with more than a dash of comedy and a pointed social commentary. It is based on nothing. It suggests a formula for nothing. 
it's an accident, but now it feels more like an inevitability. But why does now it feel like such an inevitability when just 50, 60 years ago, a movie like this would maybe find cult film status or have a very niche audience, but probably would have never achieved the heights that Get Out and Logan did. I know exactly what it is. It is the birth of streaming, which started around 2006, 2007, and that's when Amazon Video, Hulu, and then Netflix started streaming services the following year. There's no need to remind you just how popular the other streaming services have gotten since, have become since then, and especially now. And because of the availability of streaming services, and especially now with all of this extra time on our hands to use these streaming services, audiences ate up this endless variety of content on these platforms and not only did they start not only did they start to want more but they started to want something they hadn't seen before something unconventional that was really going to surprise them and make them think differently and now the rule breakers are starting to become the norm filmmakers like Yorgos Lanthimos Ari Aster Bong Joon-ho, Mari Diop, they're all basically using the conventions that make the most sense for their story to make it more in-depth and interesting and more universal as well. And along with that, again, especially these days, streaming services just want more and more content and they want a variety of content. So to me, it seems like they're not necessarily looking at the overall scheme of do we have enough action films? Do we have enough comedy films? They're starting to look at what content do we think are people really going to respond to? And yes, there's, you know, a very traditional Adam Sandler movie coming out once a year on Netflix, but they're already, they're also releasing really interesting films like Atlantics, which is this ghost love story, slightly political drama coming of age film, and it's beautiful. And I think if there's one common theme throughout all these movies that we've discussed, it's that yes, the studios had to pick them up and make them and give them the financial and, you know, monetary support. But it's really up to the audiences to go out there and respond to it and show with their dollar that they want more content like this. So next time you're on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, whatever your preferred streaming service is, just try to do something a little different. Go through and try to pick the movie that you wouldn't have seen in theaters or the movie that just sounds a little bit too weird or too this or that for your tastes. You might be surprised. You might find your new favorite film. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for new episodes and be sure to check us out on our Patreon page where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it. Special thanks to our Patreon supporter, Johnny Ferriolo. For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowitz, and our logo design is by Mark Sauvé. Thanks again!
See you next time. Girl, press is press.